0: to receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor.
1: Hi friends, would you like to hear an amazing fact? The largest aircraft that ever flew was the Antonov 225 Maria. Maria means dream in Ukrainian. The aircraft was a modern engineering marvel, featuring six massive turbofan engines, each as big as a cement mixer. With an overall size that stretched as far as a football field from nose to tail and wingtip to wingtip, the AN-225 could carry 500,000 pounds of cargo. That's twice as much as a Boeing 747 freighter. It was designed and built in Ukraine throughout the 1980s to transport the Soviet space shuttle and it took its maiden flight on December 21, 1988. Because it had a maximum takeoff weight of up to 1.32 million pounds, the AN-225 had 32 landing wheels, with 20 of them that were steerable. The monster aircraft made its international debut in style by landing at the 1989 Paris Air Show with a Russian space shuttle on its back. Sadly, only one AN-225 was made and it was destroyed by the Russian missiles in February 2022. Anyone who ever saw this behemoth fly will never forget the sensation of wonder that something so heavy and massive could travel gracefully through the air. You know, Pastor Ross, the Bible speaks of an even larger transport that will someday go through the skies.
2: That's right, Pastor Doug, and no need for, you know, turboprop uh, engines to move this object through the sky but the bible does speak of a city that's going to be coming from heaven to earth and of course that city is called the new jerusalem
1: yeah and you can read about that if you look in revelation 21 verse 2 and 3 it says then i john saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and i heard a voice from heaven saying behold the tabernacle of god is with men and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, uh, it's difficult sometimes for people to imagine um, a city floating through the sky. Well, it's not as difficult maybe as it used to be because we've got a space station up there in the sky right now, and uh, if man can do it, then why would we think God couldn't do it? So uh, it is real. God has a real city in space, that is going to come down out of heaven to the earth, and he wants you in the city. We have a special lesson that talks about heaven in this colossal city.
2: That's right, and the study guide is actually called A Colossal City in Space. That is a free offer to anyone who is watching or listening. To receive it, just call the number 800-835-6747. You can ask for offer number 115, or you just dial pound 250 on your phone and say Bible Answers Live, and then ask for the study guide. It's called A Colossal City in Space. We'll be happy to send it to anyone here in uh, listening in North America, the U.S., and Canada. And if you're outside of North America, you can just go to our website, just amazingfacts.org, and you'll be able to read the study guide right there for free as well. Well, as mentioned, Pastor Doug, this is Bible Answers Live, so we want to welcome all of those who are joining us across the country and around the world. And for those who are tuning in, on the internet, we want to welcome you as well on the various television networks. Uh, you know, before we get to the Bible questions, it's always important for us to begin with prayer because we're talking about God's book. And mm-hmm. if we're going to understand God's book correctly, we want the Holy Spirit to be with us. So let's do that. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to study and learn. And we do ask your blessing. Send the Spirit that inspired the book at the beginning to be with us, Lord, and be with those who are listening, wherever they might be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we're ready to go to the phone lines. Our first caller for this evening is Elijah listening in Washington. Elijah, welcome to Bible Answers Live.
3: Hello,
4: pastors. Thank you guys for taking my call.
1: Well, thanks for calling.
4: So our question was, uh, during Jesus' ministry on earth here, um, did he
5: remember his position in heaven and creating the world and walking in the garden with Adam and Eve and all those things? That's, that, that, that was my question. And if he did... Um, or if he didn't, is there a reason why? Which I'm sure there is a reason why. But
1: Well, that's a good question. Let's talk about that for a minute. So I think you would agree, Elijah, that when, when Jesus was born as a baby and he looked up at his mother and his father, he did not have all of the knowledge of life and his pre-incarnate existence in his mind or he would have come forth into the world speaking he had to learn to speak. That means he didn't know everything. He probably had to learn to walk like a normal child. And it it seems that as he needed to know something, his Father in Heaven would reveal it to him. Now, did he know something of his pre-existence? Yes, because he told the religious leaders, before Abraham was, I am. So he knew something. And he says, you know, Abraham longed to see my day, and he saw it. Um, so, Uh, I think that Jesus understood something. I'm not sure that at the time he was living on the earth and walking around that he had all the knowledge of uh, the creation and everything through eternity in his mind, but I don't know. I mean, it just doesn't say.
2: You know, just to add to that, Pastor, one time the disciples asked Jesus, they said, "Uh, when is he coming back? And Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour, only the Father in heaven. Right. So at that point, the specifics hadn't been revealed to Christ. Yeah. Obviously now he does. He's with the Father. So there were some things, like you mentioned, that they were revealed to Christ as needed by the Holy Spirit.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully that helps, Elijah. Good question. All right, we've got Edward
2: listening in Arizona. Edward, welcome to the program.
3: Hey, how you doing, pastors?
1: Doing wonderful. Thank you for calling.
3: Thank you, guys, for accepting my call. if you so effective. Do you have to overcome the schizoaffective disorder for your place in the kingdom of God? And if so, how do you overcome it?
1: Well, the Lord means us where we're at. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying that uh, medical conditions can't be overcome, because, of course, Jesus can heal uh, physical, mental, psychological illnesses. But that doesn't mean that a person that may be struggling with these things will always be healed. And it doesn't mean that something, you know, some medical condition you're born with is going to keep you from the kingdom. I think God expects us to surrender to him, to trust him. We're saved by faith and to walk in the light as we have it. And uh, um, any thoughts on that?
2: Absolutely. You know, as we come to Christ, we can give ourselves completely to him and say, Lord, you know, give me the strength to change those things I can change. And then give me the, the courage and the faith to accept those things that I can't mm-hmm. and place it in your hand and believe that you will work things out. Yeah. So it's a cooperative relationship. We're trusting in God to do the work that only He can do,
1: but we are surrendering ourselves to Him. Yeah, does that make sense, uh, Gary? I'm sorry, Edward.
6: Uh, yeah, that does make sense.
1: Okay. Well, you just keep trusting Jesus and ask Him to help you grow in grace and victory. And, uh, you know, always pray that... Uh, He can heal you, because I never underestimate God's ability to heal and to transform. That's the new birth. All right.
2: Next caller that we have is Gary listening in Illinois. Gary, welcome to Bible Answers Live.
3: In the church, it's often said, like God protected Israel during the plagues, will be protected. But I see in Matthew 24, verse 13, he who endures to the end will be saved. It implies that we're suffering because we're enduring. And then again in verse 22, but for the elect's sake, these days will be shortened. And again, it implies that we're suffering. And I think it's already happening. In Illinois, we got tornadoes two and three miles wide, travel for hundreds of miles. Mm. So my question is, is God protecting us or or what's going on?
1: Well, it's a mix. And let me use a Bible example. The children of Israel who went through the 10 plagues in Egypt, God protected them through the last seven plagues, but they also experienced the same calamity as the Egyptians, for, through the first three plagues. So um, in the last days, when the seven last plagues fall, God is going to protect his people. I don't think what you're seeing now are the seven last plagues, because once the seven last plagues begin, probation is closed and no one's going to be saved after that. So do Christians, the righteous, sometimes suffer along with the wicked? Yeah, that that's always been the case. Uh, God does love and also watches over his people. But uh, you know, in times of trial, believers often testify by their faith through trial, not because he saves us from every trial. And we grow patience through trial.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Gary. We've got Junith listening in Nevada. Junith, welcome to the program.
1: A blessed
5: evening, Pastor Ross and Pastor Doug, can you hear me? Yes. yes. Okay, wonderful. Uh, didn't Jesus come to the world to the true cross of Calvary, not just to bring uh, back his perfect circle of love and his perfect shalom to earth, but also to the whole universe, because the holy angels did not understand. Can you please explain furthermore in that perspective? Thank you.
1: Yeah. So, yes, Jesus, uh, one of the things that Christ did by his death— is to um, restore a better image of the character of God. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said he came to reveal the Father, among other things. He also came as our sacrifice, and he also is restoring peace, not only to the planet. It says that he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. All things that were made were made by Jesus, meaning he made the first heaven and earth, And uh, then after the wicked are judged, he creates a new heaven and a new earth, and so there'll be a total restoration, and uh, Satan and his angels and all the wicked are going to be destroyed with an everlasting fire, meaning they're burnt up forever, and the universe has no more pain, sorrow, all things are made new. So it's a total restoration of his original plan, but it's actually an upgrade.
2: You know, the Bible also tells us that when that time comes, when... Uh, The judgment has been taking place, and everybody sees the truth. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no exceptions to that rule, so that will include both the angels. Even the Mm -hmm. devil himself will acknowledge that God is fair and just in what he has done. Now, that doesn't mean it's genuine conversion or repentance, but there is an acknowledgement of God's character. Yes. And that will be manifest right at the end of time.
1: Thank you. Appreciate that, Junith.
2: All right, we've got Brad listening in California. Brad, welcome to Bible Answers Live.
3: My question pertains to Psalms one thirty seven verse one. Okay. And uh it's kind of a two part question. I was wondering I was always under the impression that when David uh went to his grave that uh he passed his blessing on to Solomon and he, he thought that the throne would be established in his bloodline forever, yet in Psalms one hundred thirty seven one he's writing the song that the Israelites sang when they were taken captive in Babylon and I was wondering, I'm trying to wrap my head around that, did he know that Israel would eventually be taken captive and not tell his son?
1: Yeah, first of all, you know, Jesus, Brad, didn't. I'm sorry, David did not write all of the Psalms. David wrote about 70, maybe 71 of the Psalms. The later Psalms are written by some of his musicians and others, like Asaph, and it, it talks about them. You'll notice that some of the Psalms will say, A Psalm of David, And then some of them, like 137, it's talking about Babylon. This is a psalm that was probably written uh, following the captivity. Isn't that your understanding, Pastor Ross? Because it's saying, by the rivers of Babylon we wept. This is after they had been captured by Nebuchadnezzar. It's one of the later psalms. And uh, so I don't know if that helps with your question, just to know that David probably didn't write this one.
3: Yeah, I was always under the impression that the whole book of Psalms was written before Solomon took the throne.
1: I used to think that all the Psalms were written by David, because so many of them begin the Psalm of David, a Psalm of David, like Psalm 23. But one Psalm is written by Moses, I think, is it 90 or 91, is written by Moses, and many are by Solomon, some are by Asaph, but David wrote about 70 as near as we can tell, so just about half. This is probably not one, because it's talking about the Babylonian captivity— that happened many generations now it is true that uh, that the son of David all the sons of David um, that were was kept in the genealogy and it mentions this in Matthew that Jesus is a direct descendant of David and Solomon and that uh, he is the ultimate son of David that would reign forever so the the line of the Davidic promise and the covenant to David did not fail Some of the kings did not reign between the Babylonian captivity and Christ. I think even Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, so briefly, they had a governor. But anyway, hope that helps a little bit. Thanks so much. Appreciate that, Brad. All right, next
2: caller that we have is Mark, listening in Alaska. Mark, welcome to Bible Answers Live.
6: Hey, how's it going, pastors? Thanks thanks to God a lot for you guys' passion. I really enjoy your interpretations, and... I really enjoy listening to you guys sometimes because it helps me with my interpretations.
1: Well, thank you. We appreciate it and glad we could be of service. And your question tonight.
6: Yeah, I had a question on 13, Matthew thirteen forty four, and it talks about uh, the treasure. Uh, the kingdom is like a treasure hidden in a field. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm wrong, but it seems to me that... For, my understanding is the treasure ain't hidden. I think, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe correct me. I think that Jesus is saying this treasure that is hidden is the synagogue of Satan, and they're in unity, and they're hard workers. This secular civil government, they're such hard workers. Don't you think that maybe Jesus was saying, Look at these people. If the Christians could only work as hard as these people.
1: Okay, let's take a stab at it. Now, I'm going to read this for our friends who are listening, Mark. Um, A lot of folks are driving down the road, and they can't look it up. And this is in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now, it is true that the There are people in the world that are very um, diligent workers. But I think the the picture in this parable—let me just back you up. In Bible times, they did not have banks as we do today. And if people wanted to go shopping, they'd get their money. They didn't always keep it in the house because—maybe a little bit—because people could rob it. And it was very common for people to bury their treasure somewhere on their property— And it would often happen that someone would die and someone else would find it. Now, right here in Northern California, we had someone up the road. They were out walking their dog and they found cans, some like five-gallon old cans filled with gold coins from the San Francisco Mint. They're worth a fortune, millions of dollars they found on their land. Now, this man, he's leasing land and he's out plowing the land and he uproots someone's treasure. And it says, and he hit it, means he thought, Oh man, I know this treasure, this field's very valuable to get trade. He could just steal the treasure, but he doesn't. He's honest. He says, I'm gonna buy the field, then I own the treasure. So he covers it up and says he goes and he buys the field. He's willing to sell everything to get the field. This is talking about really somebody who discovers the good news of the gospel and they realize its value and they sell everything to get it. Now, this parable is very much like the one that follows about a merchant who finds a beautiful pearl of great price, and he sells everything to get this one pearl. Mm -hmm. The point is, Jesus is saying they were willing to give all for the treasure. And we need to be willing to, he says, if you don't forsake all, take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy. That means we give God 100% of our heart. He said we need to love him more than our father, mother, sister, brother, husband, wife. We need to love him first. And so this is one of the many parables that talks about it's worth everything to follow Christ.
2: All right, thank you Mark. We've got Anna listening in Oregon. Anna, welcome to Bible Answers Live.
5: Evening, pastor. Evening. My point, my my question is uh about jewelry and what the Bible says about it, but in particular wearing wearing a cross. Is that is that a form of like idol worship?
1: Uh, well, I would say, you know, certainly there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that wore crosses, but there's really no command in the Bible that says to wear a cross. We're told to bear the cross, and, uh, it, you know, the cross was a, it's an instrument of torture. So I don't know that the anywhere in the Bible that ever told us to make crosses and bow to them and everything, and I realize that, you know, Paul says, I'm determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and I'll glory in the cross, and that means the sacrifice of Christ— but sometimes we sort of make an idol out of the icon of the cross, and we're not really told to do that in the Bible. Uh, Now that, you know, that could be lumped together with the idea of jewelry. Um, And, you know, folks that have listened to me for years know that I think that uh, there are commands in the Bible that say, and principles that say, that Christians should avoid wearing jewelry and artificial ornamentation not only because it's the uh, cost and the display, but there's some scriptures like where Peter says, let the adorning not be the outward adorning." I think this is First Peter chapter 3. Don't let it be the outward adorning, the wearing of gold or pearl. Paul says, let it not be you know, gold and pearls and costly array. Let it be modest. And uh, then in Isaiah, it talks about the daughters of Babylon that go around with, you know, swishing as they go, wearing, and he talks about a, n- a number of, Jewelry items, earrings, and so forth, no nose rings. And and I think Christians are best known by simplicity. A few years ago, a lot of televangelists got into trouble with various scandals, and the world was having fun making fun of the televangelists, and many of them were prosperity preachers that were just a lot of gaudy jewelry and makeup. And they were mocked because of their appearance. So I advocate that the Bible teaches Christians ought to be modest clean and neat, modest. It doesn't mean we need to wear rags, but I think we ought to avoid any kind of ornamentation. And again, there's nowhere... I know people think wearing a cross is good luck. Well, that's idolatry, you know. (laughs) There's no good luck. It's not a chicken bone or something, that a rabbit's foot. So, uh, yeah, just letting people know you're a Christian is the best thing. Now, I do have a book that actually talks about this. It's called Jewelry, How Much is Too Much?,
2: And we'll be happy to send that to anyone here in uh, North America, in the U.S. or in Canada. The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book called Jewelry, How Much is Too Much? You can also just dial pound 250 on your smartphone, say Bible Answers Live, and then you can also ask for the book that way as well. If you have a Bible question, our phone line here in the studio is 800-463-7297. We've got Philip listening in Arkansas. Philip, welcome to the program.
6: Hi, good evening. Thanks good evening. for taking my call. Yes. Thank you. Revelation yeah, I have a question on Revelation thirteen, thirteen through fourteen. Um, do you guys think that the signs and wonders and miracles part that of the uh, that the second beast performs in the side of the first beast, has that started to become fulfilled yet? And if so, do you think AI plays any type of role with technology in the
1: end? That's a fascinating question. I've been thinking a lot about AI this weekend. I'll even make a public confession that I, I tried to manufacture my first AI picture. Well, I did. I, I didn't do it, but I, I I used one of the online programs to see if it would produce a picture of, of angels flying through heaven. And it did. It was pretty, kind of rough, but it did. I, and I think, boy, it's this scary technology. Do I think that's the signs and wonders? No. Uh, the second beast is alive and well today. Um, I don't think that it's using the signs and wonders it's going to use to manipulate the, the first beast and the rest of the world yet uh, because the the spiritual issues haven't really matured. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Pastor Ross.
2: Yeah, when it talks about it, one of the signs specifically mentioned is it talks about fire coming down from heaven that the second beast will do. And we know from the Bible, fire coming down from heaven is often associated with the Spirit of God or a counterfeit of the Spirit of God. It can be a blessing or it could be a judgment. So what we find in the last days is there's this religious movement and it appears as though God's blessing is on it. There's fires coming out from heaven. There's much emphasis on the Holy Spirit and miracles and wonders. And it's not the Spirit of God, it's a counterfeit spirit that is leading people astray in the last days. And that power working with the political power described in the second piece of Revelation 13 sets things up at the end.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we remember in the story of Elijah that the great proof that God was with Elijah is that fire came down from heaven. So what's the world going to think when all of a sudden the great proof that Elijah used is now being used by the counterfeit? Mm -hmm. It's going to be very deceptive. Well, I hope that helps a little. Thanks so much. We got two minutes. Can we do one more before our break?
2: We got Lee listening in Texas. Lee, welcome to the program.
7: Yes, um, I was calling because I was supposed to be rebaptized on Easter, uh-huh. but then but I've been baptized um, four times in my life, and being baptized again on Easter was would have been my fifth time. My pad, the pastor that was going to do it said it's not necessary, being that I've been baptized so many times. Do I still need to be rebaptized again, or or is it not necessary?
1: Well, there, let me tell you there's three principal reasons a person might be rebaptized. Uh, one would be if they've never been baptized biblically by immersion. Some people are baptized as babies and and they just didn't know what was going on or they've been sprinkled. And the Bible is very clear. We should be immersed in the water. Uh, That's what the word baptized means. Another reason to be rebaptized would be if you've come into just a whole new understanding of what the truth is. And an example of that would be Acts 19, where it says these 12, you read the first few verses, these 12 Ephesian believers, they had heard about Uh, John the Baptist, they got baptized by immersion, but they had not heard about Jesus. They had left town before they heard about that and the outpouring of the Spirit. Paul preached them all this new truth they would missed, and they said, we want to get baptized again. And they were, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Third reason to be rebaptized would be is you've kind of divorced yourself from the Lord um, it doesn't mean, you know, you, so you're baptized and then you, you sin and you make a mistake, you got to run and get baptized again. Well, we'd all be getting baptized every week if that was the case. So, uh, But if a person is totally, they've stopped going to church, they've backslidden, and um, it's not that they get discouraged for a week or two, but the tenor of their life, they sort of divorce themselves from the church and the Lord, when they return, it would probably be appropriate to be rebaptized but not in every case, and it, it there's variables. Now, you, how often should a person be rebaptized? Well, it's like marriage, you know. You, if a person says, I've been married 10 times, well, you think there's a problem there. Um, it's a sacred ordinance, and you don't want to be doing it carelessly or frequently. So um, it should be done with great care, and that covenant should be protected. Um, sometimes a person could just go through the communion service, and that will serve... It's like a mini-baptism, and it gives gives all of us a new beginning. So I hope that helps a little bit, and we do have a book on Baptism, Is It Necessary? Lee, you can get a free copy.
2: Just call and ask for that. Call Amazing Facts, and we'll be happy to send it to anyone in North
1: America who calls and asks. All right, friends, don't go away. We're going to take our midtime break, coming back with more Bible questions in a moment.
0: Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly.
8: Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Through radio, television, print, evangelistic events, and the internet, Amazing Facts International is heeding the call of Jesus to go into all the world. Millions of individuals in over 150 countries have been blessed by the word of God. Amazing Facts has spawned new spheres of influence in India, Africa, China, and Indonesia. With each new country come hundreds of translated booklets, study guides, and video presentations produced in each region for the people of that region. Armed with these precious truths, gospel workers are empowered to spread bright rays of light on every path they travel. Please visit reachtheworld.amazingfacts.org to learn more about Amazing Facts International and how you can participate in this exciting, soul-winning ministry. That website again is reachtheworld.amazingfacts.org. Thank you for your support.
1: The U.S. government is drowning in debt to the tune of $22 trillion. But before you wag your finger at the government spending, the Federal Reserve says the average American household carries over $137,000 in debt. Well, it was never God's plan that we live with a burden of debt. Proverbs 22.7 warns us, the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. Living with debt is a stressful burden that actually hurts your relationship with God. In my new pocketbook, Deliverance from Debt, I outline the Bible principles on how to properly manage your money with some practical suggestions on how you can get out and stay out of debt. If you or someone you love is drowning in debt, order a copy of Deliverance from Debt today, it can be a lifesaver to keep you from going under. Please call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com.
0: You're listening to Bible Answers Live, where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and his plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live.
1: Welcome back, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live, and we're here to do our best to answer any Bible question you might have about the Word of God or living the Christian life. We've got our Bibles at our fingertips, and uh, you can simply call. It's a free phone call, and that number is 800 800- uh, 463 7297. And that's 800 God Says. We're streaming also on Facebook and YouTube. We're on AFTV and replayed on Hope Channel and a number of other networks. My name is Doug Batchelor. My name is John Ross.
2: And we got a number of callers waiting with their Bible question. We're going to go to um, Joan in Australia. Joan, welcome to the program.
5: Hello. How are you?
2: Hi. Doing
1: good. Thanks for calling.
5: My question comes today from 2 Kings 5. It's the story of um Captain Naaman and, and with the prophet Elijah Elisha and Gehazi. And I just want to um if you could help me paint the picture um uh Gehazi went um accepted uh by lie a payment uh went back and and the prophet said did my heart not go with you Um, Is it now that we accept payment? And then Prophet Elisha says, um, Captain Naaman's leprosy will now be with you. And he walked out as white as snow, Gehazi. Mm -hmm. So as the story goes on in in the Bible with Elisha, it also continues with Gehazi. So I was just thinking, so does he continue working with the Prophet as white as snow? With
1: leprosy? Yeah, no. I think the next time you see Gehazi, he may be. Well, there's two possible times. There are four lepers in Second uh, Kings chapter six. Actually, they're in Second Kings chapter seven during a famine, and Josephus says one of those four lepers that uh, said we're not doing what is right. This is a day of good news. May have been Gehazi. Um, later, you see Gehazi. He's talking to the king and telling the king about the miracles of Elisha. And a person might say, well, if he's got leprosy, what's he doing talking to the king? Well, there's a few different possibilities. One is that he was later healed and forgiven. It doesn't say that in the Bible. The other is even people with leprosy could communicate, but they had to keep a certain distance. And so maybe he was talking to the king. It was some distance between them because he was unclean. Um, That's uh, a difficult scenario to imagine. So... um, you know, we can only speculate, but Gehazi does appear later in the story, after he gets leprosy, he's talking to the king and telling about the miracles of Elisha. So he may have been healed, it's hard to say.
5: Yeah, and the other one last story was the the lady that um, didn't have a child.
1: Yeah, the um, Shunammite woman.
5: After, yes.
1: Yeah, and the story of the Shunammite, not all the stories of Elisha's miracles are in chronological order. The emphasis is that Elisha has doubled the Holy Spirit of Elijah, and then it begins to recount examples of his miracles. I'm not sure that they're all written in chronological order. So the Shunammite, uh, I think, happened before the story of Naaman.
5: Okay, thank you.
1: Thanks,
2: great questions. All right, next caller that we have is uh, Abigail in Florida. Abigail,
1: welcome to the program.
5: Hi, pastors, how are you guys?
1: We're doing much better than we deserve,
5: awesome. My question is um in matthew twenty seven fifty two fifty three um who were the saints they were referring to? Were they people, and did they ascend into heaven, or where did they go?
1: okay, good question um in matthew twenty seven it talks about that when Christ died on the cross after he cried out, "Lord, you know into your hands, I commend my spirit, it is finished." There's a great earthquake, and in connection with that earthquake, it says many of the graves, not all, it's not a universal uh, resurrection, but many, and not all the graves around Jerusalem, but some of the graves of saints, safe people, who were resting in their graves around Jerusalem were opened, and then after, when Christ came out of his grave Sunday morning, some of them arose and appeared to people in Jerusalem, briefly probably, because it's not even mentioned in John or Mark or Luke. Uh, But there were people who saw some of the resurrected saints that evidently they ascended to heaven with Christ when he ascended, after he'd spoken with Mary. And uh, who were they? Doesn't name them. There are some people who were believers in God, faithful, buried somewhere in the area around Jerusalem. And Probably not John the Baptist because I think he was buried down by the Jordan somewhere. Uh, it, you know, it could have been people like Isaiah. We don't know. It doesn't say their names, but um, how many? We don't know. But there is a first fruits that I think you've got a verse in Ephesians. Talking yeah, there about is. That. Ephesians
2: chapter 4, verse 8 actually talks about a group that ascended with Jesus. And here you have Paul quoting uh, the Old Testament. He says, For when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. And he's actually quoting here from uh, Psalm 68, but it's referring to those who are held captive by death or by the grave. They were resurrected and they ascended with Jesus when he ascended to
1: heaven. Yep. So hope that helps a little bit, Abigail. And uh, yep, we do have a, a study guide that talks about the dead and it's in the resurrection. It says, are the dead really dead? And if you're interested, we can send you a free copy of that. The number to call
2: for that is 800-835-6747. And again, just ask for the study guide. It's called, Are the Dead Really Dead? Next caller that we have is Inga listening in Canada. Inga, welcome to the program.
5: Hello, Pastor. Hi. Hi. My question is, um, is there going to be technology in heaven?
1: Well, uh, when you say technology, uh, of course, you know, God is the author of all true science, and so there will there be scientific wonders, I would think, of course. Um, will we have smartphones? Probably not, because I'm thinking that a lot of things that the smartphones are doing now we'll be able to do in supernatural ways when we get to heaven. Uh, we won't need a GPS. I think the Holy Spirit's going to tell us where we are. We'd get lost pretty quick in the universe without, without <laughs> some kind of divine GPS. But we'll be, you know, we'll be probably doing all kinds of research into the beauties and wonders of God. And I says we're going to plant vineyards and eat the fruit and build houses. So we're doing constructive things. Is it plausible that as history goes by, we'll be making things? Yeah, I believe so.
2: All right. Thank you. Next caller that we have is Jerry listening in Oregon. Jerry, welcome to Bible Answers Live.
4: Uh, good evening, Pastors Ross and uh, Bachelor. Yeah. I'm reading John 5:24 which says verily truly I tell you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life but the when I look at uh, Matthew 12:36 it says that uh, everyone We'll have to give an account of every idle word. And then Revelation 20.12 says that uh, the books are open and the dead are judged according to what they have done. So my question is, are the believers judged or not judged?
1: All right, let me, there's one more. You've read some good verses there. Uh, you can look, well, I might give you two more. Romans 14.10. Paul says in the last part of that, for we will all stand, and he's talking to the church, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And then if you look in 2 Corinthians 5, 10, it says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body. So with that in mind, what does it mean there in the Gospel of John where it says we've passed from judgment? I think that he's basically saying that uh, because of the blood of Christ, our sins are stricken from the books. So when they look in the books, it says forgiven. But the books are going to be examined, and the only way that uh, our deeds are not going to rise up against us is if they are confessed, repented of, and under the blood of Christ. But there's still a judgment that that reveals that. Now, some judgment takes place before Jesus comes, because I think it's obvious to everybody, that if Christ is distributing rewards when he comes, some investigation takes place before he comes, sometimes referred to as a pre-advent judgment. So the judgment sort of happens in three phases. It tells us that we will judge angels, Paul says. Uh, during the millennium, judgment is given to the saints, and, and there's, we're, we're looking at the judgments of God, of why some people maybe aren't there, and why some people are there. I can picture in the resurrection that when Stephen sees the apostle Paul in heaven, he's going to think the angels did something wrong because the last time Stephen sees Paul, he was killing Christians. Now he's in heaven. So the, Stephen will get to look at the judgment books. And so we're sort of looking at some of the judgments of God. And then there's a final great white throne judgment where all the dead are resurrected. And that's called an executive judgment. They're given their penalty. But again, the books are open. And every knee, save lost devils, angels, everybody is going to bow before Christ and say he is Lord.
2: You know, we have a couple of study guides that talk about the judgment. People want to learn more about that. Um, If you call and ask for the final judgment, it's one of the amazing facts. Study guides we will be happy to send that to you. You can also ask for the one called Right on Time. That's sort of part one and part two about the judgment. The number to call for that is 800-835-6747. And you can ask for the study guide called Right on Time and the Final Judgment. will tell you all about what's happening in this heavenly courtroom that's described in the Bible. So 800-835-6747. Next caller that we have is Aaron listening in New York. Aaron, welcome to Bible Answers Live.
3: Good evening, pastors. Evening. If a stranger insults you by calling you a derogatory word for no apparent reason and immediately leaves you, so that you cannot ask them what happened? Is it okay to do nothing about the insult and act like it never happened? Or should you give a prayer for forgiveness for that stranger?
1: Well, Jesus said, uh, when people say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake, rejoice. And the Bible then tells us to turn the other cheek and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So the answer on both counts, according to Jesus' teaching, is, as far as possible, try and turn the other cheek. Now, if if I'm standing on the corner and some lunatic comes up and starts taking swings at me, I'll probably defend myself. But, um, you know, if someone insults you, you just turn the other cheek. I I get criticism uh, all the time. Some of it's deserved, some of it's just being mean. And, you know, I don't respond to retaliate because, you know, that's what Jesus did. And that's what I think he wants us to do when they, you look at the trial of Christ, they said all kinds of terrible things to him and about him. And he really didn't defend himself. And Pilate was amazed. So, um, and then, of course, pray for, Jesus prayed for those crucifying him. So should we pray for people that uh, spitefully use us and persecute us? yes. Is it hard? Yes. <laughs> but that's where we're developing Christian virtues. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate that. Next caller that we have is Carlos listening in Florida. Carlos, welcome to the program.
4: Good evening, Pastors. Hi. Hebrews four verse four says uh for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise comma uh what 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 certain place? And I'm not understanding this uh, this term here. Where, where uh, do you have a king? Are you guys reading from a King James? Yeah, well, uh, I've got the New
1: King James here. It's almost identical.
4: So, so it says, "For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise."
1: On this wise means in this way. Yeah. Oh. Okay, and he's okay, gotcha. he's quoting so, so. from the Old Testament in Exodus 20, where it says God rested the seventh day, and he may also be quoting from Genesis 2, 2. Because it says it in both places so
4: so the place so the place he's speaking from is the seventh day
1: well no it means that uh the that king david he's quoting about he's talking about king david in chapter four of hebrews and it says for he he spoke in a certain place well actually he's talking about for god spoke in a certain place uh, of the seventh day and god rested from his work and he's talking about where in genesis 2 2 it says that um God rested from His work in creating the world. Then so He goes what's on. What is
4: a certain place?
1: What is a certain place? It means in the script, yes. a place in the Scripture, and the place, the place is. In scripture. Yeah, he's talking about. Oh. He's spoken. He's quoting various verses. Like if you look in verse three, it says, "So I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest." Here he's quoting from Psalm ninety-five. Uh, so Hebrews, he's going through different places in the Old Testament. I think there are more quotes more Old Testament quotes in Hebrews than any other New Testament book. I think Matthew and Romans might be next. Hey, thank you, Carlos. I hope that helps a little bit. Next caller that we have is Troy listening in Massachusetts. Troy,
2: welcome to the program.
7: Good evening, pastors. I just want to thank you guys for your faithfulness and amazing facts. It had a huge impact on my family, so I just want to thank you guys. Praise um, God. My question now, it's about Daniel and Ezra. Uh, we know what the 70-week prophecy is. Um, with Ezra chapter seven is where it starts the 70 week prophecy. And I'm reading Ezra now
1: okay.
7: In Ezra chapter four with the resistance of building the temple. when um, it says Artaxerxes had sent a, um, a letter to, to cease the work that's been going on at Jerusalem. And it says until the second year of the reign of Darius, King of Persia, it's Ezra chapter four and verse 24. My question is, is this the same Artaxerxes that comes forth in chapter seven? Because in chapter six we have the issuing of the decree of Darius, and in chapter one was from um, Cyrus. I'm just kind of confused if it's the same Artaxerxes in chapter four that's in chapter seven.
1: Yeah, if that makes any sense. I yeah, good question. I think that it is different. Um, you know, sometimes they had sons uh, our rulers. There's actually more than one Darius. Uh, that had the same name there's a Darius during the time of Daniel and then years later you get another Darius during the time of Ezra and I could be wrong Pastor Ross but I think the one in chapter 7 is the Artaxerxes who did the decree that allowed them to go home and the one who put up a blockade that you find in chapter 4 I think it was a different king uh, during a different time so I don't know if you uh, know more about that Yeah, I was just going to mention
2: a couple of other... There are three decrees that are particularly significant to the Jews that allow them to go back and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And um, the first decree was by Cyrus. The second was by Darius in 519. And then Artaxerxes was in 457 BC. So that's the one that's really recorded for us in Ezra is the decree that allowed the Jews to go back, not only rebuild the temple, but actually the wall of the city And that's the decree in 457 B.C. that starts the 70 weeks or the 490 years. So is there another Artaxerxes? There could be, but this is the one that the Bible speaks of, especially in Ezra, as being the most significant
1: in issuing that decree. Yeah, and the the decree is actually found in chapter 7. So I think he's wondering, is the Artaxerxes in chapter 4 the same one in chapter 7? And I'm trying to go back in my Persian history and remember, I I just remember there were some of these kings that had the same name. But I know the Artaxerxes in chapter 7... That's the decree of 457. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have to go look that up again because uh, I'm second guessing what I said. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that just goes to show you, friends, we don't have all the answers, but uh, we'll, we'll research that. Troy, I, I want to make sure I'm giving you the right answer. Thank you. Thanks. Next caller that we have is Nicole listening in
2: Michigan. Nicole, welcome to the program.
7: Hi, how are you?
1: Doing good. Thank you for calling.
7: Good. I have a question about Numbers chapter 28, verse 7. It says that strong drink was to be offered in the sanctuary. What is that strong drink? Because I'm under the impression that the people of God were not supposed to have anything to do with alcoholic beverages, and especially not in the sanctuary. So what is the strong drink there?
1: Yeah, that that's, I think, often misunderstood. Um, the word strong there... Uh, It could in some places mean strong as in alcohol. They had another word for strong, and it's the word like concentrated. Now, you've probably had orange juice before that was made from concentrate. Um, I'm guessing you've tasted what orange juice from concentrate tastes like before you add the water. And you could say that's really strong. The Jews used to actually dehydrate their grape juice so they could transport it, and, you know, liquids are very heavy. They would dehydrate it, make it into a syrup, and uh, then they'd reconstitute it. That sometimes was called strong drink. The word strong there meaning intense or concentrated. It might not be alcoholic at all, and it, matter of fact, could be very sweet, almost a syrup, but then you'd add water again, and it was just right. This may very well be what they're talking about because I, I don't think God approved them using alcohol, uh, the two sons of Aaron were burnt to death. God rained fire down on heaven from them for drinking alcohol before they went to the sanctuary. It would seem strange that he would then endorse people bringing all alcohol into the sanctuary.
2: And of course, we do have Leviticus, actually. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 9 says, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink when you or your sons who are with you. Go into the tabernacle of meeting. Yeah. So part of the sacrifice that was given would also be used to help sustain the priesthood. So the priests were clearly told that they were not to be drinking alcohol when they were involved in the Good sacrifice. Point. So um, it was a concentrated sort of grape juice that could be diluted with water.
1: Yeah. And if you, uh, I, I've got a book called Alcohol on the Christian. I think it references, I wrote it, you know, 15 years ago, so I don't even remember everything that's in it, but I think it, it references the, um, the strong drink that you find in this passage. The number to call for that is
2: 800-835-6747. You can ask for the book called Alcohol and the Christian. We'll be happy to send it to anyone who calls and asks. You can also dial pound 250 on your smartphone, ask for Bible Answers Live, and then ask for the book, The Alcohol or Alcohol and the Christian. Next caller that we have is Mike listening in Missouri. Mike, welcome to the program.
4: Well, here, let me get to it real quick. Uh, My question concerns Acts chapter 12, verse 4 of the King James Version. And according to the Julian Concordance, the word for Passover in that particular passage is Easter. Now, this question is based on hearsay. I've never been able to find this in writing, but this person told me that um, um, that Easter, I'm going to state it in the question. Is Easter the correct name for Passover when calculated by a Julian calendar?
1: Uh No, well, uh, the word Easter is not the word in the original. When they're translating it into uh, English, the, because the time of the Passover is the same time of year as the Catholics that celebrated, and even the Orthodox Church, or whether you call the Church of England, the same time they celebrated Easter, uh, not always the same day, because they would pick it differently. The Jews used the more of a lunar cycle, that um it's basically just saying that Herod was going to execute Peter during the Passover or after Passover was over i think it's letting us know that's the same time of year they were going they did execute Jesus so they use the word easter there in the king james but you'll find in most other versions they translate that passover what the exact date was i think it would be according to the jewish calendar not the roman calendar cuz this is written by a jew so it's a lunar calendar the jewish civil calendar Okay, He's just saying that he, Herod didn't execute him right away because the, they're waiting for the Passover to be over. And if you look at
2: the same verse in the New King James, which is very close to the King James, it does use the word Passover in place of Easter. Yeah. So it sort of corrects that, a better, a better word in yeah. that case. All right, thank you. Next caller that we have is uh, Linda listening in California. Linda, welcome to the program. Thank you.
5: I'm confused about which are the people who will fight with the devil against the New Jerusalem?
1: Who will be fighting against the devil? Uh, no,
5: with the devil. Who, who, who's fighting with the me. devil?
1: What well, tells us Gog and Magog? The devil rallies Gog and Magog, and you find that in Exodus chapter twenty, and Exodus twenty is sort of quoting from Ezekiel thirty-seven and thirty-eight. Gog and Magog. Twenty. Uh, oh, sorry. Reve- yeah, Revelation. Thank you very much. Uh, Yeah, in Revelation chapter 20.
5: Where did the people come from? Because before the second coming, the earth is void. I'm getting to that. Okay, gotcha.
1: Yeah. They're, They're resurrected. It says the rest of the dead, and now we're in Revelation chapter 20, the rest of the dead live and not again until the thousand years are finished. So the dead in Christ rise first, so all the righteous are resurrected. There's only one group left who are the rest of the dead. If all the righteous are resurrected in the first resurrection... Uh, it says the dead in Christ rise first in First Thessalonians. Who would the rest of the dead be, Linda?
5: The lost.
1: That's right. It's a wicked. It calls them Gog and Magog in Revelation because the Revelation uses s- symbolic names for almost everybody. It uses Balaam and uh and Apollyon and the Lamb and the Lion and Jezebel and, and it uses Gog and Magog, because in the Old Testament, those were enemies of God's people from antiquity. Gog. And then you've got Magog means from the matrix of God or the children of Gog. So it's like Babylon and her daughters, Gog and Magog, the wicked and the children of the wicked. are. You've got the good, it says, the woman and the seed of the woman. So you've got the good side and the children of the woman. And you've got the bad side and the children of the wicked. And uh, so it's saying all who have ever lived from every generation, they are coming against the people of God and the devil is rallying them, to assault the city of God. And I think you also find that in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. And God delivers his people at the crucial moment. Now, I hope that helps a little bit. Uh, Linda, we, we thank your friends. Just in case you did not know this, the uh, amazing facts were on many different venues right now. We broadcast on TV, on radio, through satellite and land-based TV and radio stations. The clocks aren't all the same on these different networks and because of the timing difference between satellite and land-based stations, we say farewell first to our satellite listeners. And those who are listening on satellite radio, we love you. Nothing personal, but we're going to sign off with you. But the rest of you, don't go away because then we come back and we do our best to do rapid-fire Bible questions that you have emailed in. So stay tuned for that. For the rest, God bless. <music>
0: Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California.
2: Hello, friends. Welcome back to Bible Answers Live. And again, as Pastor Doug mentioned, just on the other side of the break, we're going to take some of your email questions. So if you'd like to send us an email question, our email address is questions at amazingfacts.org. And we'll try to answer as many of these questions as we can in the time allotted about two and a half minutes past the day. First uh, question that we have. If Satan was cast to the earth, where did he go
1: during the flood? Yeah, I think uh, people sometimes wonder if the whole world is flooded and if the devil was not in the ark, then, you know, they're looking at the devil as though he's got a physical body. But The Bible says we do not wrestle, Ephesians chapter 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I mean, if we did, I'd love to punch the devil in the nose. Of course, I'm probably not stronger than him physically, but but, uh, he's a spirit, and uh, he can sometimes manifest himself in physical ways, but ultimately he's a spirit. So I don't think he was worried about drowning, per se. Um, He didn't need scuba gear or anything, but he probably saw the catastrophe of the elements and feared for his own existence when he saw what was happening to humanity. Mm-hmm. He saw the terrible judgment that came on mankind, he probably feared. But no, he didn't Didn't need to worry about drowning.
2: Okay. Uh, we have Rachel asking, will the 144,000 know that they are part of this group during the time that they're on the earth, or will it not be made known to them until Jesus' second coming?
1: Well, that's a good question, and I'm not sure I know the answer. Um, the 12 apostles knew that they were the 12 that had been specifically chosen, Uh, will the 144,000 know that they're, you know, 142,003? No, not necessarily. I I think that there's going to be a special spirit-filled group of apostles you might see in the last days doing a great work, but they may not know that they're one of them.
2: All right, next question that we have. Can fallen angels still repent and be saved, or is the plan of salvation only for human beings?
1: Well, probation is open for humans now. There was probably a time when angels could have repented. God gave them a period of grace, and we don't know. It may have been thousands of years while this debate went on in heaven. But ultimately, their probation closed, and the, the uh, angels know that they are now in everlasting chains of darkness. And the demons often said to Jesus, We know who you are. Have you come to torment us before the time, meaning judge us? So they know. The devil knows he has a short time. There's no turning back. The fallen angels have no redeemable qualities left. Friends, great questions, and we hope we can have more great questions next week. Give us a call. And in the meantime, check out amazingfacts.org and keep us on the air. God bless.
0: This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live, honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions.